0: Lauren. Mike. So we host a podcast for Wired called Gadget Lab. We do. We do. (laughs) Yes, that is correct. (laughs) Tell the good people some more about it. Well, I think the good people should definitely tune in every week because they get to hear me roasting you. I know. All right. No, really what Gadget Lab is, is Mike and I tackling the biggest questions in the world of technology. I like to think of it as the best of Wired's journalism, but in audio form. We cover the big news of the week in tech land, but we also offer our expert analyses and opinions on all things consumer tech, whether that's mobile apps, hardware, startups, cryptocurrency. Mike, what's been a recent highlight episode for you? We did a deep dive on the group behind the massive Okta hack. We also had a great conversation about Web3 and the metaverse. What stands out for you? Never met a verse you didn't like. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed our recent podcast about Peloton. um, And recently, the legendary tech journalist Kara Swisher joined us to talk all about Elon Musk and the future of Twitter. So I guess we should tell people how they can listen to our pod. We release a new episode of Gadget Lab every week, and you can listen and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you pod.
1: Have you ever felt that your life has no meaning? Do you wake up in the morning dreading the day ahead? Do you feel lost? I'm Tanner Campbell, host of the podcast Practical Stoicism. Every Saturday morning, I explore the ancient texts of Stoicism and derive from them practical takeaways that anyone can implement to live a more contented and fulfilling life. Search your podcast listening app of choice for Practical Stoicism and join me each week to explore Stoicism practically and discover how it can help you live better.
0: Today's guest on Around the Coin is Jeff Winner, the CEO of Happy Money. Happy Money is a leading facilitator of unsecured personal loans in partnership with community-focused credit unions. So we dive into exactly what that means and exactly how the business works. He joined the company in 2020 as the chief technology officer, served as the chief operating officer before taking the helm as CEO. The company has raised roughly $190 million at well over a billion-dollar valuation and Jeff, prior to joining Happy Money, spent two years at Goldman Sachs as the CTO of Marcus, where he led the team building the Apple Card and pioneered the first cloud-based Goldman Sachs product. Previous to that, he led engineering teams at a number of Silicon Valley companies, including Stripe and Twitter. He holds advanced and undergraduate undergraduate degrees in computer science and electrical engineering from MIT. And Jeff has four children and three grandchildren, and now lives in Boulder, Colorado. So I hope you enjoy the show. I bring you Jeff Winner. All right, Jeff, thanks for hopping on today. I'm excited to dive in with you. You've done so much in your career. Um, I don't even know where to quite kick it off, but but, but would love to hear what you're currently focused at inside of Happy Money. You, You came on not as a founder, but as a CEO, I believe you came on as an intern CEO, but maybe to kick I, off the conversation, like, tell me about that. Tell so about that. I, I joined Happy Money
2: one year and 11 months ago. Um, and I actually joined as the CTO. Um, prior to this, I was the CTO at Marcus Bank um, at Goldman Sachs. Uh, primarily the thing I did there was led the team that built the Apple Card. Um, but I wanted to get back to startups. And I liked the mission That Happy Money has, which is to build products that help people have a happier relationship with their money or use their money as a tool for happiness. And I wanted to get back to startup land, like, like um be more a part of that. Goldman Sachs is awesome. Actually, they have a great culture and stuff, but it's not a startup. Um, and so when I was looking around, I found Happy Money. They were in a great space working with the credit unions, providing these initial product of the payoff loan, which is a loan that pays off your credit card debts. And they were also in a place where they were truly a technology platform. Essentially, we facilitate loans. We don't make loans. And on top of the credit unions. And that struck me as an interesting place to be. So we had a common interface and we were driving demand and creating loans and servicing loans and then putting them on the books of the credit unions that we work with. And the credit unions are an interesting beast because... They are not-for-profits, <clears throat> tax-exempt organizations, so they have a good cost of funds. But as banking is becoming more and more and more technical, I think we all know the sort of like deconstruction, and reconstruction of all these financial services is happening. It's not, not like we invented that. That's just been a trend for like 10 years or so. And um, these folks that are not of this gargantuan size have trouble competing. And so it was interesting to me to build a platform that sits across all of them and then to start to offer their services through that platform sort of like um one giant institution stitched together from all the credit unions but for the benefit of the credit unions so that's that's where we're headed right now is that um that partnership where we sit on top of the credit union balance sheets and then we increasingly offer initially more kinds of loans including we're going to offer an API shortly like uh, in a month or so that'll go live and the API will allow people to make unsecured loans to individuals using the credit union's balance sheets facilitated by us. So um, we do everything. Like we, we underwrite, we fund the loan, we take the payments, we distribute the money to the credit unions, we distribute the money to the person. So it really is like reminiscent of how the payment services do everything for you. If you sign up for a payment service, you don't have to do anything with money. All the money just happens. And the same thing will be true with our API for lending.
0: Awesome. Uh, I'm curious, why are the credit unions uh, still in the market? Are they providing, is there some regulatory uh, category in being a nonprofit that they have a, a strong competitive advantage against uh, either, say, bigger banks or other places to raise capital? Not raise, but to borrow money. <clears throat> and so it's not, not exactly regulatory.
2: But because they are not-for-profit for for the benefit of their members, they don't pay any taxes. And so, um, but that also means they're not-for-profit, right? All the benefit of whatever they do goes to their members. Um, So, that means they have a low cost of funds, a traditionally low cost of funds. Mm -hmm. The problem that they have competing is that none of them, some of them are quite big, but none of them are at the scale of like a Chase Bank or Citibank or someone like that. And so in a world of tech, they have trouble competing for employees. They have trouble building critical mass to build the tech. And that's sort of the area that we would like to address from them. The other thing that credit unions um, do enjoy, probably because they've been for the benefit of their members for so long, is they have a lot of loyalty from the people that that um, work with them. And they traditionally have offered secured lending products, auto and home. Um, I don't know if you've ever touched a credit union or not, but... It was, a, it was a very common way to get an auto loan, and it still is. They have a lot of indirect auto through the dealerships. Um, and they power a lot of mortgages as well. The same idea. They have a low cost of funds and they provide for the benefit of their members. Um, they've had traditionally difficulty offering unsecured lending. It's a different world. It's shorter term. It's higher rates. It's a little harder to manage. And so that seemed like a good opportunity for us to say, you're good at getting deposits. You have a high trust from your members. Um, we will build a technology and you know, a technology platform to handle all the heavy lifting of doing the lending and servicing the loans, and then we'll work together, right? And so it truly yeah. is a platform where we work together. Um, and our interests are aligned, right? We want to make more high-quality loans. Uh, we have a lot of restrictions on the loans we make because we want to make products that make your life better. So we we want to ensure that the loan contributes to your happiness, doesn't contribute to your financial stress, is super transparent, has no penalties and things like that, that just sort of sometimes get people in trouble. We don't want to have those kind of loans. And we're kind of fortunate that our credit union
0: partners are all really aligned with that, that philosophy. So what, what are are those? Like what would be a loan that I take out voluntarily as a consumer, as an example, that would be, uh, make me unhappy or make me mm -hmm. is bad for me.
2: So there's sort of Two examples I can think of.
0: Like the first example
2: would be um, credit card debt. So credit cards have very high interest rate. Uh, the minimum payment on many of them, if you calculate it, it's you've taken like a 15-year loan, right? Because, because the minimum payment takes a very long time to burn down the, the debt. Um, and then the third thing, which people don't often understand about credit you credit cards, but, but possibly you do, is that once you carry a balance on your credit card, all of your purchases start earning interest from the minute you make that purchase. So it also becomes a less useful vehicle for you if you are in the place where you're, where you're revolving, where you're paying that. And so one of the things we do is we help people to take that, put it on a typically a lower interest rate loan, which is fairly easy to do with credit cards because the interest rates very high. Um, and then on, a shorter term, say two to four years. Um, we have a lot of flexibility on that because the credit unions do not securitize their loans. And so we don't need to conform to pa- something that would pa- packaged up and sold. Um, but the idea is to create a loan and a monthly payment that will get you out of your debt in a reasonable amount of time, has a better interest rate. Um, but won't put you in a place where you're like can't, can't make your monthly obligations where you're stressed out doing that. So we don't. Strictly adhere to ability to pay. We go to a lower ratio than that, where we think the ratio won't cause stress,
0: right? And then the second one. uh, Sorry, give you a. Go ahead. Yeah, go for it. I I was going to ask though, on the credit card. How can the credit cards get away with charging as much as they do? Is there just not a competitive economic force? to them? Are they just so easy to get because they have direct ties with banks? Or uh, I'm wondering how, how, how are they, you know, they can only, ch- they can charge exactly what they can get away with charging. Meaning that if somebody sure. offers a cheaper option, then they would have to lower their prices, but their prices for the interest rates are so high. Is that because it's just, um, yeah, I'm curious what your thoughts are on that.
2: So, I I mean, I don't know, but when I think about how a credit card works, um, so take a spending on your credit card versus proactively getting a debt consolidation loan with us. Like if you were to think about just spending on your credit card, it's like this incremental thing. So, you know, you boil the frog slowly and then the person has this breaking point. Credit cards are fantastic. Like cre- if you use a credit card properly, it provides huge consumer protections. You get points, you get deals. There's all sorts of things. If you use a property They're they're a fantastic vehicle, right? Um, they also are more and more actually transparent, but the dynamic of I'm doing my monthly spend and now I tip over to the place where I can't make the whole balance. And, and so when I bought the credit card or, or applied for it and got the credit card, I probably was thinking about things like the benefits, the points, the lounge access, all the, all the stuff that's important to you about which credit card you use. However, and, and I probably didn't look at what is the rate if I'm revolving. And then when you tip over into it, now you're at this place where all of your spend, and if you're like me, all of my spend is on credit cards because I like the points and it's convenient and I never carry any cash. Um, Now you're at a place where all of your spend is earning interest and it's very difficult to dig yourself back out of the hole. So I think the reason is is that when the person's selecting the card, they don't think in their mind about, well, what happens if I start to pay interest on this card? Um, Whereas... Like for a debt consolidation loan, people are very price sensitive because that's the only thing they're thinking about is what's it going to cost me to pay off all this debt? <clears throat> and so I think that's why the 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 unsecured debt consolidation is more competitive, is because it's a lot easier for people to compare on prices. And it's also the thing that's like front of mind for them is how much is this gonna cost me? Um uh, I'm I'm not I'm not, you know. We don't we actually know why people, some people get in credit card debt and others don't. But I, you know. Yeah. It's.
0: Yeah. No, I think you're you're hitting on the right the right concept though. The, the idea of the frog boiling slowly. I would imagine most people are not going into a credit card thinking that they're even at risk of not paying it off. Uh, I'm sure there's statistically some who do, but it is kind of surprising how expensive it gets if you don't pay it off each month. And I think there's a... A level of like uh, financial knowledge that you can accumulate or don't accumulate in the education that you have, especially if you're in your 20s. I, I feel like if you're first kind of getting into the, the real world and managing your own money and balance sheet and uh, credit cards are appealing. You know, you get what you want now and you have to pay mm-hmm. for it later. And so if you're the personality type, I think it probably skews personality type, impulsive... Um, it, it, it's hard to know exactly, but there is that, you know, you, you there's some people who just only care about, yeah, let's do it today. We'll figure out a way to pay for it, figure out a way to fund it. I mean, you see this in like politics in the macro sense too, where that debate is like, where are we in terms of a, a debt to the country or debt to individuals? And and how likely are we able to pay that off in the short or long term? And it's, it's hard to know, right? You can be optimistic. I'm sure you see this in tech where it's like, yeah, we're going to hit a billion users. We're going to hit a billion dollars in revenue, billion dollar valuation. Right. And you place a bet on that as an investor or as a founder or employee that you're going to make that journey happen, but you just don't know how things right. change. So I think that trickles all the way down to individuals. So yeah, I'm going to get that job promotion and then you lose your job. It's like, oh, right. yeah. Uh, so it, it, it definitely it, can
2: happen that people get into trouble because of an unforeseen life event. I mean, you know, yeah. that, 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 that's, that happens to people. Um, I think what you're, the, the, the phrase you were looking for, and it's actually interesting because, um, there's two things I think that lead to it. One is intrinsic to the person, which I think you were looking for the phrase of delayed gratification. And we all know the people that can have delayed gratification in general do more successful in life, but it's like an intrinsic characteristic. So if you don't do that, then when you get a credit card, it's like you have this little like device in your hand. That just feeds into that trait of yourself like I, i'm not good at delayed gratification so i'm, I'm going to just get this thing i want it right now um <clears throat> and then the second one is education and for me i was pretty fortunate growing up i uh, uh, and my parents when they talked about me getting credit card first of all they told me not to get one for a long time because they thought i was you know too young and young people don't have the best impulse control and then when i got one that they were adam you pay it all every month and so um, that was a good lesson to start life with rather than to have to learn that the hard way right by running up a whole bunch of debt and then paying it off,
0: yeah, yeah, it could be really painful to go through that process, and also just the credit i mean the whole we don't have to go down the road, but man, you accumulate bad credit score as a young person, and then you don't intentionally make moves or make decisions in your life to build that credit back up because you don't know how to do that because it's Right. Very black boxy and it's not explained to people so it it does seem like we have a large uh, uh, a long way to go in terms of educating young people on how to build financial credit and make smart moves I did read that the Federal Reserve noted that thirty percent of Americans don't have enough cash to pay a $400 emergency which is Right, wild to me. Yeah, some some of the stats. Uh, another was credit cards and mortgages account for two thirds of American consumer debt. Um, and the average consumer debt is worth seventy five percent of US GDP, which is seems pretty daunting. I mean, if you think about it on an individual yeah. level, like okay, how much do I make per year, and then if seventy five percent of that I'm in debt, it's it's a lot. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, I I want to ask you a bit about the the relationship between the business models of happy money and the, uh, credit unions. So it seems like with the credit unions having this nonprofit classification, they don't have to pay taxes, but in return for that, they have to reinvest the proceeds, the profits of the company. They have to distribute them to the members as opposed to reinvest that back into the company. Um, so there's kind of this, like, there's this, Drip or this uh, counterforce to growing large. You know, if they could just reinvest that back into the company, then they'd have a huge advantage. Do you see like Happy Money bolting onto the nonprofits as a way to in- grow the the credit unions? I mean, do you see Happy Money as like bolstering up the credit union market? Whereas five, ten years from now, we might see massively large credit unions or. Does that not make sense? Um, It could do that. Uh, I I do believe
2: that what we're trying to do is to build a platform that integrates all the credit unions into a single entity for a lot of purposes, like for the purposes of of providing loans. And then that allows us to build operating efficiency. It allows us to build marketing across all of those. Um, We we have a direct consumer business as well that we work on. We have a, a loan participation network for the very small credit unions. And, I I think it might result in one or two of the credit unions. We are partnered with some of the biggest ones in the country, one or two of them growing in an outsized fashion. My hope is what it does is it revitalizes the whole industry and both the big and small can continue to survive. And we have that sort of like, like really diverse takes on different kinds of credit unions that provide things for different people and that they all can succeed well because they have a, a platform that lets them participate in the, like what's happening to banking being consumed by technology, right? Like we, that's happening, right? Whether, whether anyone wants it to do or not, that's happening, whether happy money does anything or not, that's happening. So um my hope is, is that we can be the platform that lets them play and the analogy I use in my mind. And it's, far from perfect um, is the way that Shopify lets people play versus Amazon Um, because it's millions of small merchants. They all do pretty well. Shopify is a fantastic product, right? Um, uh, Through that platform. And if I think about how with thousands of credit unions and maybe even community banks at some point keep their sort of local or small community touch, but participate in this giant platform that enables them to have nationwide reach that then enables them to be commercially successful and do even better for their members. That's why hope happens. It could, it could do what you're also saying like take a few of them and grow them to outsized credit unions.
0: In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo crypto wallet is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has just until now only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, It's the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at Zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's Zengo.com. Code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of
1: $200 or more. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18
2: plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right, uh, though, on the uh, the trend of technology impacting pretty much everything and everything in the world, but certainly everything in the financial space. Um, What are the other noticeable trends on fintech that you're seeing? So you were at Stripe previously, you were at... uh, um, uh, Marcus, with uh, mm-hmm. oh my god, I'm drawing blank. Goldman Sachs, uh, yeah. are the are these? Do you see a a a desire to get to consumers directly? I mean, Happy Money touches the consumer f- financial portion of it directly. You know, you're you're primarily thinking about building a brand, building an appealing message and mm-hmm. services that help individuals. Is that the tip of the spear in terms of where innovation is on technology and fintech or do you view it as across the the entire stack or Mm -hmm. somewhere else specifically yeah Yeah. so
2: i see sort of two two trends one is like marcus bank um, at goldman this idea that financial institutions will be entirely digital institutions goldman has no branches right um and so um, and that's a big advantage to them. They don't have to pay for them. They don't have to run them. It's an entirely digital experience, which is what many consumers want. And that's how they're getting in front of the consumers directly. And I think that the big banks in particular, like the city, the chase, Goldman are well equipped to do that. They can hire big teams of the developers. They can produce fantastic products that, that like stand toe to toe with other things in the app space or in the web space. Right. Um, the credit unions are not so well equipped to do that. But I think they can take advantage of the second trend, which I think is more powerful and ultimately will win out, is that many, many of the already successful consumer applications are looking for ways to include the appropriate financial services within their application and still maintain first touch with the consumer. Um, and I think that that trend will just continue to accelerate I, I don't actually even know if that's controversial. If you were to look at Amazon, Google, Facebook, all of them are pushing their way into the kinds of financial services they think their users want. Um, and if we can provide a platform that powers that and enables them to do that, deal with the regulatory complexity, deal with fraud, deal with the money movement, then I think that that trend will continue. And just as a, maybe partly because I, I was, I, spent my almost my entire career in the valley i i think it's going to be hard for in the long run the banks to win first touch with the consumer um yeah, yeah. maybe the giant ones will but for like a little local bank to win first touch with the consumer that feels like that's going to be really difficult to me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Because they're competing on a different playing field. I mean, you, you mm-hmm. basically invested in this business 30 years ago, 40 years ago, whenever you started, and you're investing everything into the people, the culture of the bankers, the real estate location. I mean, some of these are just like downtown and major cities. And then we go digital, we have a pandemic, and then literally no value, probably negative value is placed on having a physical location. And so to your point, I, I almost think <laughs> when you said earlier, one thing that caught my ear was you like, you're like you drawn to happy money because you wanted to be in startups. I think of it as like Stripe, could you call Stripe a startup at this point? No, but what makes them unique is that they were built from the ground up using technology mm-hmm. as opposed to JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs that are bu- fundamentally built from the ground up, thinking banking first, J- just right. purely based on when they were started, and so they have enough money where they can bolt on great technology. Um, the, this was a, I listened to a podcast with uh, Patrick Collison, the Stripe CEO, and he was saying this. He's like, "What? Somebody asked him why is it that a company like Chase, which has virtually infinite money just can't build a very compelling user interface online. And he's in some combination of smart people and talented people don't want to work at these companies. And it's difficult for these companies to decipher what talented people are and how to organize them within their company and how to integrate them within their company. And I just found that kind of mind blowing that, that it's just not that there's such an enormous advantage of companies who start from the ground up with software do you have any, maybe not advice, but things you've learned from having been in both worlds? If people are listening and they're in large companies and they're like, we have to make a change to technology, but they're feeling it's like it's a daunting task. Uh, I do
2: have some some thoughts on that. So one, um, even even tech startup companies, even Stripe, a fantastic company, has old technology as they go along, right? That they have to replace that they want to keep up. But what they've built is a process that's twofold. One is they are focused on the technology and they are driven by technologists. They are not driven by people who are bankers or people who are, or whatever, whatever your industry is. If, if people focus on the industry rather than technology, they have a different focus. And, and so when a Stripe or someone does that, they are iterative. They understand what it means. They keep in touch with advancing technology and they quickly move to the new technology. The second one is that in a company like a Stripe or as Happy Money is Becoming or almost any startup, engineering is central to the company. And it takes a long time for an existing organization to move from like the bankers are the central thing to engineering is the central thing. I think that's why Goldman started Mark. I don't know why they started Marcus, but I think that's why they started Marcus was to take and take this small organization and set it off to the side and say, hey, this organization is does banking, but it's about tech rather than we we do banking and tech's a side thing, right? And I think that if you don't have tech as your central thing, then a lot of the ways that you run the company, the iteration, the rapid experimentation, the attracting the best talent just are much, much more difficult.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Agreed agreed it, it's kind of like trying to boot up culture from scratch it's it's possible mm-hmm. if you if you if you create a new entity within your organization like Marcus's the Goldman Sachs possible mm-hmm. but it's difficult if you do it ingrained in the existing culture. I mean how many times do you hear of founders who start a company and then they have an aqua hire or an acquisition and then it just fizzles out within the parent company because the yeah. the, the dominant culture of the parent company, just doesn't quite mesh people aren't productive they aren't happy they get distracted and they leave yeah 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 uh you you guys uh now are you guys happy money is over a billion in in valuation raised 150 60 million somewhere in that range um oh total yeah total total yeah uh it's certainly now in the category of like beyond startup Um, do you see the credit unions, I guess, let me ask you this. Do you see the, the way that lending happens and money movement as becoming completely withdrawn from humans? So credit unions and banks will, they'll look at your credit score. They'll look at your sources of income. They'll look at your savings in various locations and they'll make a, a decision, whether it's an auto loan, a business loan, a mortgage, et cetera. Do you view that as just, we're just in this middle ground until it becomes fully automated where you just connect APIs, whatever sources you have, and then it's like, yes or no, or how much? Yeah. So, so
2: what you're talking about there, we call underwriting, right? Basically, are we going to give you the loan or not? Um, and I do think that in short order, you know, I don't know, five-ish years, 10 years, uh, all underwriting will be nearly a hundred percent automated. Um, and part of that is just the amazing increasing capabilities of things like AWS, right? You know, mm-hmm. like if I want to see a picture of your driver's license and know it's you, I can use Amazon recognition and it can tell me the right answer all the time. And so I don't need a person to do that, right? If I have a document and I need to read it and parse it, they have services to do that as well. So, um, <clears throat> So part of it is just that like the things, the point tasks that the person does are becoming... More and more able to do with the advanced technologies offered by the cloud providers. Um, the second one is, is that with as more and more of the sources of data become available programmatically, like think of something like plaid, Mm -hmm. right? where, Where I can see all of your transactions or even there's automated payroll verification services, then there's less and less need for a person to do things. And so I think it will become like a totally automated process that doesn't Like support the conclusion that that won't take into characteristics anything about you as a human. So like one of the things that we do is that we think of underwriting in in roughly three stages and it's kind of like a, I don't know, all of these are hard but you can say it and it sounds simple, right? One is, are you who you say you are? Right? So, like, uh, are you Mike Townsend? And then, yes. If that box isn't checked, yes, do not go, right? Mm -hmm. We're not doing anything. Right? The second one is, can you pay and we can use services like plaid and stuff to do an analysis to say, Hey, here's the, the, here's the money coming in. Here's the money coming out. This person can pay. Here's what their revenue, here's what their income looks like. And here's what that percentage would do to them. So it wouldn't cause too much stress. Right. And then the last one is, will you pay? Um, And will you pay is a lot about looking about characteristics of you as a human, and we try to use that last one through psychometric science that we developed in order to essentially give you better pricing than you would get better interest rates under the other one, and also to improve the quality of our portfolio. And so th- that's roughly what, what underwriting answers everywhere. And the computer can do a lot. The computer the cloud systems can do a lot of analysis that takes into account those softer characteristics, and it's very important that it can also do it in like a uniform way across all people. It's not you know it, it doesn't have any biases. It's all can be just built to be, you know, will this person pay? And so I think that you can have a human touch in there, even though humans aren't doing it.
0: Yeah, that is fascinating to me. Uh, so the psychometric analysis that is not biased what, what, what is, what is not biased? Like what, what could be not biased about the soft assessment of a person? Cause certainly, so, if, you were to, if you were to just as a preamble to that, I feel if you were to just take a computer, analyze a society and then draw out who is most likely to pay, you're going to get uh socially inappropriate responses. So the computer is going to segment out by age, by gender, by race, by all the things that we don't, we as in like society doesn't like to um, draw lines around. Right. Rightfully so, right? So that would, that would, we, we
2: haven't noticed that in any of the characteristics that we look, look at. And the primary characteristics that we look at is the way that you go through the application or does it look like you're very likely that you want to use this for debt consolidation? And it turns out that someone who is desiring to do debt consolidation is very likely to repay their loan like regardless of any of their other gender, race, whatever, any other characteristics. That's that's just broadly very true. The other thing that we do is, um, and you can do this much more easily with models than with people, is that we can backtest every change to the model against everyone who's ever applied, not like, like a, a, a sort of like a simulacra of them, right? Since we don't keep personal information if, if we don't have to. Um, to ensure that it doesn't introduce any sort of adverse selection. And that's something that all banks, um, when you're required to do, but all banks just like, I don't think there's, I don't know, maybe I'm just like Pollyanna, but I don't think that any institution is interested in having, wants to have any sort of adverse selection, right? You know, we certainly do not. Um, And so um, one of the things you can do with a powerful, fully automated model is you can run it on a test across hundreds of thousands or millions of people to ensure that it's not there
0: walk me through what does that mean so you run a you run a back test model on hundreds so of so you would say look at look at everyone who's applied for the past five years and you
2: and whatever characteristics we happen to know we of course don't know everything about people but and to ensure that when the model selects it doesn't make a selection that adversely selects against any of those criteria like age or gender.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: then if the model would, then you wouldn't put it into production.
0: Got it. Is that the same as saying if there's any differences between uh, category, categories of people, then there's a mm-hmm. bias in the model? That's right. And then And then the model's not valid. But wouldn't that have to be true? I mean... Maybe I'm not understanding it correctly, or maybe I'm wrong. But if I were to say, take people in society that you've issued loans to, do a back test on the model, and say, uh, out of everyone from eighteen to sixty-five, um, uh, do an analysis, and if we do, if we find that there's any correlation with older people paying and younger people not, then the model is biased. It would seem like there there's always going to be some uneven distribution, whatever line you draw. It it it, it may be true that.
2: That um that would come out in the model. But um banks aren't allowed to do that. You you have to ensure that your model doesn't do that. And so we we do our best to ensure that our models do not provide any sort of selection based on criteria, even if we don't know them, mm. that that would that would introduce that kind of bias. It's and it's anyone who does, I think actually the psychometric stuff is more robust because there's a lot of psychometric analysis that shows that that's kind of the same across all kinds of populations and it's remarkably persistent throughout the ages. Um, But anyone who uses machine learning of any kind is exposed to this. And I'm sure that they all do similar safeguards to the way that we do yeah. to make sure that they're not doing that.
0: It, but it is if say say you're to take the example of just accumulated money and you say you look mm-hmm. at people uh, over <clears throat> any age range from eighteen to sixty five you're not going to find right. even distribution older people have more money just purely because they've yeah. been around on this planet longer yeah. uh you w- i wouldn't draw a correlation to say that the the model is wrong or the lending uh algorithm right. is biased in any way it's just an observation is that is the observation in and of itself, um, I guess what I'm asking is how do you parse out so, the observation from the bias?
2: So certain hard facts are are permitted. Like, do you have the resources? Do you have the income to have this loan, right? Um, is your FICO score appropriate, right? Your, your FICO score is a score that is like, it may turn out that it's not, I don't actually know, but it might turn out that it, it has different scoring across people of different um, ethnicities or something. But those are sort of hard facts. It's so when you get into the softer facts that you need to be extremely careful that you don't introduce anything that would select against someone. So like you're very safe. Um, and in fact, you're doing the c- consumer a very good service. If you look at ability to pay, right? You wouldn't want to make loans to people that they can't pay back. Right. Uh, like, um I guess if you wanted to charge a lot of fees and penalties or something, you could try that. But in general, that's a bad idea. So, um, those types of characteristics are kind of one, like hard facts. It's when you get into the softer facts that you want to be sure both sort of morally, but also, and, and, but also legally that you're not introducing anything that would introduce bias against anybody.
0: Yeah. 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 It's, it's so interesting because, uh, there is a, a business case for it. And I think that's where the mm-hmm. that's where the, the rub is. That's the friction point between society and its concern and society's concern for moral um mm-hmm. business practices. And then if you just look at it like purely from a utilitarian perspective, capitalism and business, it wants as much data as possible. The more data, the, the better uh modeling you can do. But there is some data which we view as uh not as not um appropriate to feed into the model things like race right. things like i don't know if gender is if, if you can do that or not but no there, there are there yeah you can't okay um so what can you probably use location and then <laughs> yeah so yeah so it's like this is no this conscious? you can't
2: you can't do zip codes either oh really hmm. because there was a a really old long ago there was a practice of redlining Yeah, Uh, which was a very bad practice, right? Um, and so now you, you, you really shouldn't do that. Um, yeah. And so I, I guess the answer is from my perspective is that like, like we've decided as a society that we're not going to use certain types of characteristics as things that we decide these types of things on. Um, and I personally agree that that's morally correct. And you probably could find a way to make more money to do it that way, but it would not be the right thing to do.
0: Yeah. Well, similar similar to by analogy, it's like um, you could have a food company that makes, you know, you're you're selling food and you, or a healthcare company, let's take a healthcare company. The healthcare company wants you to be unhealthy so they have a problem to solve. The financial company wants you to need money so they can sell you money. And so there's um, there's like a, a checks and balances where you're, every business is solving some problem for people. And so the business inherently wants there to be more problems out there in the world to solve, which is like mm-hmm. the, the mission is, you know, Uber's mission is to make transportation like water. Like everyone gets exactly what yeah. they want. Everyone, imagine that. You snap your fingers, you walk through this teleport system, and then you're at your destination. Well, now Uber is obsolete. Now we're past that. And it's, right. it's, it's kind of the evolution of, of business is to evolve your mission statement, but it is kind of, I think interesting to call that out. Cause I, I see it happening in practice, especially in large companies where they get to a point of solving the mission they set out to do. And then, then what happens is they have to preserve themselves. The organization organization has to stay alive. And so it, it keeps the problem going. And that's, right. you know, you can see that in some industries more so than others, like healthcare, certainly. Um, uh, changing a little bit directions. Crypto, okay. does does happy money get into uh, <clears throat> crypto today or in any way uh, or have plans to? Or do you personally spend time learning about or planning? Um, I, I,
2: I I know how crypto works uh, uh, uh and uh I've been interested in cryptography for a long time uh, I I worked with the team at uh I actually managed the team at Netscape to built SSL um so I like crypto um and I like it for what it provides for privacy and those sorts of things non repudiation there's lots of like really important uses of secure cryptography mm-hmm. um I'm aware of how um blockchain works um I like, not much with the cryptocurrencies. I haven't done much with that. Um, and this is probably because my roots are in programming. I really like smart contracts. Um, because, you know, like programmable contracts. Well, it's not cool about that. Right. Yeah, and so, smart. um, I like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, 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 I really like that idea. Um, and I think that that will have, have legs in it. But otherwise w- we work with credit unions. If credit unions wanted to offer, Lending products in a cryptocurrency. We would certainly do it, but we, we provide no, we are a technology company. We provide no, no assets to lend. We, we, we don't actually lend any of our own money. It ne- never leaves our books. And so we haven't heard it, heard a, a request for that yet. They are very conservative in terms of like crypto will have to be very broadly accepted, maybe even accepted by someone like the Fed before, before the credit unions would move. Um, yeah. I think there might be, um, there might be other interesting applications and we're cer- certainly open to it. And certainly if someone had a cool smart contract idea that would be good for us, I'd be open to it.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, <laughs> you put it out there in the world. That's <laughs> right. Listen, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so you were a uh, director of engineering at some pretty cool companies, uh, mm-hmm. uh Stripe t- Twitter. I think you're at Uber, obviously Goldman, yeah. um, I assume now leading Happy Money with the size of the company, you're not spending your time in Terminal and a code editor day-to-day. When you were director of engineering at those companies, what was your day-to-day like uh, in terms of you're managing a team, presumably it's hundreds of people or you're overseeing even Mm -hmm. thousands of people. What were the types of I don't know if I want to say lessons learned, but as you became better at the job, just in having done it longer, what did you um, uh, what did you do differently, sort of in the in the in the later roles than earlier? Like, where do director of engineers make mistakes? If you were to coach people on that, um, so
2: there is sort of sort of two classic areas, um, and they're like the, the two sides of one coin, right there. W- one is. Um, as you move up you can stay too close to the day-to-day coding and everything which then makes you like super annoying to everybody you're you know you're always like poking into the code you're not doing your management job you're, you're you know you're not you're not helping to be productive you're not providing the leadership and the guidance that you should provide and by the way as a manager that's your only job is to create an environment where people are as productive as possible it took me a little while to get that through my head but once it was through my head like i I was pretty good at remembering the one thing that was my only job. Um, <laughs> and so um, I think that there's that. Uh, and then sometimes folks go too far off the other end where they become just an administrator. And now, why do they add any value managing the engineers other than that they were one at one point over anyone else? And so I think that I, as I did it a few times, I learned to calibrate a, where to sit in terms of I'm providing leadership. I'm providing opportunities. I'm providing guidance for people. I'm actually do the management job, right? So so that people get career advancement and get challenges and get the right things delegated to them and then sit at the right place in the technology stack where I know how the technology works, what's going on. And I can sort of communicate that to my team, the team I'm on, not that I run, which will almost always contain people who are non-technical. Mm-hmm. And so... You need to learn to communicate complicated technical concepts in a non-technical way so that the broader team can participate in the decision-making. And that's really a part of your job is not to just make the decisions, but communicate so that everybody can participate in that. Um, And there's sort of like two, two places where I think it's demonstrate the right level of tech touch. There might be more, but here's two easy ones. One is, and the second one I really love, so maybe it might not be the best one, but I love doing them. The first one is to participate in actively the architecture of this system as it goes together. So be a part of that, read it, be engaged for that, provide your feedback, learn from the architects who are more close to the technology than you are now and are going to help teach you and keep you at a place where you're a technical manager, not just a manager, right? And the second is um, there's this thing when a site has an incident, Where afterwards, we do what we call a root cause analysis meeting. And that is exactly what it means. What was the root cause of this? And for me, I not only like to read all of those when I come on to a new company, but I like to attend those every week um, because, and I said this might be a quirk. For me, when I see all the ways something breaks, then I know how it works. So if I can, if I see it breaks here, it breaks there, it breaks there. Oh, now I get a sense for how this thing actually works and holds together. And it's pretty important to know that when you think about the new kinds of things you want to do with it. So that's a, and it's a lot of hard work, right? It's hard work yeah. to manage engineers.
0: Yeah. When you, when you first get into a role, do you, do you schedule one-on-ones with everyone right mm-hmm. away? Is there a certain, is there a couple of things you would do when you first join a, an existing team? Um, yeah. Uh, so one is,
2: I and I picked this up at Stripe. Um, is I have a document called Working with Jeff that tells you how I work, what I like, how I express appreciation, how you know, like that I that I value radical candor and absolute transparency, and that making mistakes is okay, and things like that. Right. It's about three or four pages long. I tell everyone to read that, and I publish it as broadly as I can at the company for everyone to read. There's no secrets in there, and everyone reading it helps me make it better. Because they'll say, oh, here, you're kind of lying. You actually do this. And I'll be like, no. (laughs) Um, And so that's the the first thing. And then there is the second one you already mentioned. There is absolutely no substitute for one-on-ones with the people that you manage. I I always do them and I always do them every week. And it's just important to give. You're managing someone, they're a full-time employee, and they aren't worth a half an hour of your time a week. That's ridiculous. Of course they are. And so I, I I don't bend on that. I, I make those happen every week.
0: How many would you typically take at the most? So I think that
2: in order to give the right level of attention and the right care and the growth for someone who's like a complicated creature, like an engineer, <clears throat> you probably shouldn't have more than eight mm-hmm. people. Um And it probably doesn't make sense for you to be a manager at less than three. So, you know. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Um, maybe a team lead or something and help you help you build those skills. One of good one-on-ones is hard to do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What do you kick off conversations one-on-ones with? Do you say casually, how's it going? And just let people vent? Or do you approach it more structured? So I like to keep
2: either a Google Doc, I love Google Docs, or you know, if we have a tool at the company, um, a a list of items that we're going to discuss. And I actually start every one-on-one with reminding the person that it's not a status update. This is their time. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about what they want to talk about. This is the time where they're telling me what they need from me. Um, and so I will occasionally, if there is an urgent performance issue to discuss, I'll, I'll put it in there. But I prefer to schedule a different one so that that time sort of remains sacrosanct to say, no, this is I should I should always keep my one on one with Jeff because it's my time. It's a time when he listens to me and when he's finding out what I want and tries to solve things that are important to me. Um, and so I usually provide that framing at the beginning of each one, probably to the point that it's annoying, but I want to be sure that the person like gets it, that like, don't come in and tell me the status of all your projects. That's not what this meeting's about. This meeting's about other things. And, um, some folks are better at using that than others. If they, if they aren't, then I find that just sort of, just as you mentioned the casual conversation, Hey, what's going on this week, we'll, will often get them started. Right. Um, and that can be helpful.
0: Yeah. 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 And sometimes I'm I'm sure you must've witnessed that it, it goes into like pseudo therapy where people start talking about, (laughs) Oh, this person is tough to work with, or this goes on in my personal life. And, um, is that the case? It, it, um, one, it is a good forum for someone to tell you what's
2: going on in their personal life, because that helps you have context for why maybe they're not performing at work. Mm -hmm. Right. And it helps you to, Offer things that they might not ask for, like, to, oh, oh, do you need a leave of absence? Do you need some time off? Like, is this, is this, is this a way that we can help you to, you know, get, get back on your feet or, or get, get your mind back in the right place? And that's important. It's important to provide the space for someone to talk to you about that. Um, and I think if you didn't provide that, the one that it, I, I discourage, um, and it's, and again, I, I think it's a lot of annoying habits, but anyway, um, is that if someone complains about another person, I'm not sure where I picked this up over the years that, that I've been working many places, but they'll say, Oh, so and so is such. And I'll be like, Oh, and, 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 what did they say when you told them that? And they're like, Oh, well, I'm not, I don't want to tell them that. Right. And it's like, yeah, well, <laughs> do you, how will we, the three of us meet and we talk about it. Right. Because you don't want to become too attuned to the whiniest person. You don't want to make decisions about someone else without hearing all of their input. And ideally, you'd like people to build the skills and practices of handling these difficult interpersonal things with each other because it's good for them and it's it's good for the company. And it's way unrealistic to expect. You're going to build a fast-growing, hardworking organization where these things aren't going to happen. They're totally going to happen, right? And so um I usually have found that kind of the more you don't want to talk about something, the more you should talk about it.
0: <laughs> it's true. True in personal life, too. Whether if you have a spouse <laughs> or... A <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, did you do a similar uh, maneuver when you joined as C- CEO? Or sorry, you joined as CTO and then became mm-hmm. CEO. Um, in, in that transition, CTO to CEO, was there a was it a big transition? Was it was it incredibly smooth? It was yeah. Um so um so my
2: my transition was I was hired the CTO, and then I moved to be the chief chief operating officer for a few months, and then I moved to be the interim CEO and then the CEO. Um, and because when I moved to be the CEO, this the old CEO and founder was leaving, that was necessarily a big trans transition. And the reason behind that was that. Scott and the whole board actually felt I was a very good person to navigate this, building this technology platform. I'm fundamentally a technologist, right? Um, of APIs. And I've also worked a lot with partners and I'm good at operating things, right? One of the lots of engineers now um don't just write code, you operate complicated services, so you build these good operating skills. And so that was quite a transition from Someone who was more from the business side, more baked in just sort of the vision and tended to rely on someone else to implement it. And so, yeah. So I had lots of one on ones with everybody. We did lots of this was during COVID. Um, we did lots of get to like as many get togethers online as we could. We did a couple in real life get togethers, which was incredibly difficult given all the restrictions and stuff hmm. in order to build those relationships and then constant repetition in some ways like starting something new is way easier than changing because when you're changing, people have the old way and you have to constantly repeat what the new way is and help people make that transition. Um, So I think it took, I don't know, about two months for us to, to make a good solid transition to be a functioning executive team. Again, Um, it didn't seem out of line to me. It seems sort of expected that that's what would happen.
0: Yeah, sounds <clears throat> right. Especially given that everybody's remote, it adds an extra level of uh, you know, human beings are animals and we like to be around each other to build trust. Uh, you don't necessarily have to build it, be around each other to be productive. I think a lot more mm-hmm. people are productive when they're not distracted by other people, but certainly you can't just be productive and have a culture. A culture implies a relationship between people. Do you uh think that bringing people together every day sometimes per week sometimes per year what's your thought on building culture in in a largely remote world that we're in so uh like there's like sort of three things i think about that one is
2: you need to recognize that the organization is distributed and you need to be really intentional about your communication and very like I only worked to Happy money two days before COVID happened and then we became distributed. So I'm, I have experienced what it is to have a new job and be distributed. Um, we, we decided this was a real thing that was going to last more than two weeks. So we leaned into it. So the first thing we did was we s- reviewed all of the ways that people learn about what's going on at the company and became really intentional about writing that down, sending it out over communicating. And then we did surveys on it. It's actually interesting that we got feedback after a few months that people felt better informed than they had ever been. Like not then, not, not, oh, now we're the same. It's like, no, it's way better than it was when we were all in the office. Because you get lazy and you rely on just the office, right? And um, the second one was to be um, very intentional about the use of written documents in general, because it isn't easy to go ask someone. And you want to be sure the stuff is written down and accessible and you can read it and you can get the answers from reading it. And then the third one is to focus on as much in real life as we could. For the first year, we could do almost none, right? It's so restrictive. Um, and the second year we did team in real life meetings, which helped somewhat. Um, and now we're more focused on an all company in real life, which would be a combination. And we're going to do at least one of those a year and see how that works, Um and we'd like to do more. We're just trying to figure out what's the world of these restrictions going to be like. And then the other thing that I do personally, so um, like I'm the CEO, first time as a CEO, I am very allergic to organizational distance. I don't want there to be any between me and anybody else. And so... I do a bunch of things like I do weekly coffee chats. I write a weekly email to the whole company. I run an all hands. I do office hours and all of that is to make up for the fact that you can't just come and stand by my cube and ask me stuff. Right. And in general, we've had feels like a lot of like artifice, but in general, the feedback is that people appreciate the availability. So. I'm hoping that as we get past all these restrictions, we can make more use of meeting in, in real life. And I think that will add on top of what we're doing now. I think we've done a pretty good job of having everyone feel connected by being so like intentional about mm-hmm. how the con- all the connectivity is going to work and really thinking about where problems might occur and how we could fix them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I really appreciate your thoughtfulness around all this. Uh, so a lot of what you were describing is communication methods with other people on the team how how do you think now as having run the technology portion of many companies and stepping into this new leadership role where i think of the ceo as being distinguished from the cto and other executive roles mm-hmm. as uh as as articulating the direction of the organization and how we're specifically going to go in that direction and so mm-hmm. figuring out the direction do you have a an organized approach to, um, to like continually renewing the direction. Cause certainly the world changes, you learn new things, you build products that fail and you have to, you have to change directions. Yeah. And, and oftentimes they're not like major changes. You're still offering financial services to people, but maybe yeah. it, it changes in some significant way. Do you have a practice of, um, journaling or writing or how do you go about processing all the conversations you have into like a clear articulated pathway Mm -hmm. forward? So, so like to start off with one, you're
2: right. The CEO job is a little different. The CEO is responsible for, for the creation of, he doesn't have to create themselves, but you know, everyone can help, but, but creating and maintaining the vision and mission of the company and setting the culture of the company as well. Those are two things the CEO just has to own and do now, I, I'm a very team-oriented person, and so the team, we work together to develop that, but then I have to be the face of that. Um, and what you mentioned on the second one, I actually think comes from my engineering. And while we have a fairly open discussion process, again, based on written narrative documents in Google Docs, in fact, um, I like that written down. I like people to put their comments in. I like to keep the comments. I like to have it written. And... Every time a new person reads it, I like to take their questions and get answered. So it gets better and better, right? <clears throat> but from the engineering background, um, there's this agile engineering practice or lean startup practice from from Eric Ries or someone like that, right? Where you want to run the smallest experiment you can, take what you learn from that and iterate. And we were doing that in the engineering team at Happy Money. Um, and if we hadn't had tech debt, we would do it better, but that's getting burned down. Um, and so I'm bringing that as an intentional process. So every month we take everything we thought was going to happen, all the forecasts. And we look back and we see if that violated any of our assumptions, if there's anything we should do to change the course. And we reevaluate what we're going to do in the next month, every single month. And we do it in a pretty structured way. And this is like, because of the stage we're at, like when you haven't launched, that's, that's different, but we have a very significant lending business Mm -hmm. and we also are launching new lending products. We're launching new APIs. We're, we're getting into other businesses to help the credit unions as well, and so we want to be sure that the way that we spend and allocate our resources is appropriate to the existing lending business and helping that to grow and to growing new businesses that will, uh, you know, provide for the long term strategic growth of the company. And we do do that in a pretty intentional way. And we, for better or for worse, we reevaluate it every month like to see did anything change we also looked at our competitors do anything this month Is something happen in the marketplace so much change in the world that i'm not sure how i don't know i have never really been able to like think about a two-year plan and have it come out right <laughs> and so like i'm not sure how you do it now everything changes so fast right it's much better to have like a general destination and then sort of i don't know wander your way toward it
0: yeah um yeah. Yeah. Do, do you tune into any, uh, sources of, of outside mm-hmm. news, um, consistently, wh- whether they're like people uh, on Twitter or articles or writers, bloggers, journalists, anybody that you feel is distinguished in their, uh, quality? Probably two people, um,
2: most common, um, and one's way more prolific than the other. Um, so, Having worked with Patrick, I have a huge amount of respect for Patrick. And so sort of anything Patrick says or talks
0: about, I- I'll generally follow it. Right. This is, uh, this fa- Patrick Collison from Stripe. Patrick Collison. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, you know, he- he's super thoughtful, crazy, smart person. And so almost anything he writes or says, I, I-, I will read it. Um, and then the other person is Reed Hoffman. Mm.
0: Um,
2: just, just like one, like amazingly successful individual, but also just really thoughtful. Really helps you think about general long-term trends. Um, if there were someone else that I follow, I will typically look at what people from Andrews and Horowitz say as well. Um, it, it's funny. I, I think I tend to follow people that I have known, mm-hmm. right? You know, and so I, I get a sense of who they are and, and how their brain works and, and the incredible contribution that they have. So those would those would be the sort of the biggest ones with, with probably reads writing's being the most influential on me.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, when you've, when you put that much thought into, uh, what you're writing about and have seen as much as he has, uh, it's like the combination, you know, you could be incredibly thoughtful and you could spend all your time writing and reading, but unless you have that insight into what other people are doing in boardrooms that aren't public, it's like, you just can't quite see the same thing. You know, he has a unique visibility that, you know, yeah. it's smart to read what he's writing. Um, awesome. Anything else you want to throw out there, Jeff? I, I really enjoyed hearing from you. Anything that keeps you up at night, anything you're, you're worried about or anything that, uh, you, uh, want to throw out for happy money. Obviously people can check it out. I love the branding. I like the mm-hmm. idea of making people happy around our financing. Brilliant model of empowering the credit unions to facilitate loans through APIs and direct to consumer. Um, yeah, the only other thing I'd throw out there is that like, for me
2: personally, one of the things I really, I mean, Stripe is wild, a wildly successful and fantastic company, but one of the things that I really liked there, and I hope we managed to accomplish by publishing our own uh, lending as a service and eventual bank as a service APIs, is to become part of that formative entrepreneurial and developer community. I really liked liked that. I, I liked having so many developers use what we're building. So many entrepreneurs thinking of cool ideas and I'm hoping that we can accomplish something similar with happy money where we become the focus of the creativity of all those people in terms of what they could do with the tools that we're building. It's just super rewarding for me. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I I think you should also do some, you know, I'm sure you have, uh, but I I think you're a really clear thinker and you have a lot to say from having been at some of these awesome companies. So, uh, I'm, I'm just poking you to, uh, put more (laughs) (laughs) written content out there well i'm glad you uh joined the show today it was really exciting and insightful to get to know you a little bit and congrats and wish you the best of luck with everything all right thank you very much all right cheers jeff thank you for listening to around the coin if you enjoyed the show today consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts tweet about it or text it to a friend we really appreciate all the support and growing that we can If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you.